Welcome to the Follow the Leaders podcast, where we get a glimpse into the minds and lives of exceptional leaders and hear about their experiences, insights, and strategies for success. On today's episode, we'll hear from one heart-centered, effective leader and hear about their wisdom and perspective. So get ready to follow along. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am so happy to have Roseanne Sheridan join me for a conversation about her robust 30-year career as a leader in the world of theater. The first half of Roseanne's career was spent at American Players Theater, where she was instrumental in the growth and development of the company, both artistically and with production. She later taught and directed for numerous colleges and regional theaters before taking on the leadership role of producing artistic director of Children's Theater of Madison, a nonprofit dedicated to sparking imagination and building community through the experience of theater. At CTM, Roseanne rebuilt the company from the ground up, directing shows, fundraising, and much more. Roseanne holds her Master of Fine Arts degree in directing, and she has been the recipient of various awards and recognitions, both locally and nationally. CTM has an excellent reputation here in Madison, Wisconsin, for wonderful performances and enriching theater experiences for our area youth. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Roseanne. I am grateful that you've made the time to talk with me, and I'm looking forward to learning more about your professional and personal perspectives and experiences in leadership. It's great to be here. So let's start with your most recent role as producing artistic director for CTM. What all goes into a position like that? And let's just ask, what did a typical week look like for you in this leadership position? Yeah. So for the, about the first 10 years of being with the company, I had the title of producing artistic director, which is basically a combination of both the artistic end of operations and the management or business end. So in that capacity, I was raising money. I was making sure I understood what the balance sheet looked like. I was directing shows. I was picking mm -hmm. seasons. I was overseeing the educational programs. I was meeting with donors. I was going through an audit, you know, all that <laughs> stuff that nonprofits have to do. And so it was a really combination of both business and program management and leadership. And then also sort of rebuilding the company to get it back on its feet after it had gone mm -hmm. through some financial difficulties and was mm -hmm. restructured to have a single person in the leadership role. After about 10 years, the the demands of the job and the scope of what we were doing had grown tremendously. And mm -hmm. so that job got split into two jobs and they were a co-equal leadership model, which is pretty common for programmatically based arts organizations. So there was then a managing director who was really business administration and economics and all that. And then artistic director, which was focusing more on programs and mission-centric programmatic developments and stuff like that. So at that point, now the two leaders were, well, I was the artistic director and I hired a managing director to co-lead the company. And so while I didn't have primary responsibility for the financial part of the operation anymore, I still had a great deal of involvement with it. And the two can never really be separated in an arts group. You know, the business can never be more important than the art and the art can never be more important than the business or the money. And both have to totally work hand in hand and there has to be like such a deep collaboration, but also respect that there's autonomy in each of the roles. So that sounds very dynamic. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's so true. I mean, in most companies, big corporations and other kinds of business-based companies, there's usually like a CEO. You know, mm -hmm. there's somebody at the pinnacle of the triangle, right? And so that it's more hierarchical kind of point person. And so there's sort of a top-down leadership structure. And in this arts organization and many arts organizations, the co-leadership provides for some both collaboration as well as cooperation. So mm -hmm. it, it gives a little bit more push and pull so that there's not one voice that's saying yes or no, but the two people have to really be aligned and also know where their lanes are. Mm -hmm. So you're not double dutying it, but you're also not being blurry about who's really kind of taking the, the lead on certain things. So I always think about it as like, we are both driving cars in the same direction. And sometimes we pull over and one gets in the other car and we drive together for a while. And then sometimes we drive separately and sometimes I get in his car, sometimes he gets in my car and, you know, just sort of as an analogy, but, but always we want to make sure we're going in the same direction and we're heading towards the same destination and that we have a really good roadmap for what we're going to do to get there. So that definitely requires a lot of learning how to communicate together and all that. But it's a good model for an arts organization because it sort of keeps checks and balances in place. And also for a nonprofit, it ensures that the mission is always being served. I love that. And then I guess in these two different chapters, it might have varied, but what entailed like the bulk of your actual work during a week? I'm sure it varied depending on where you were in your seasons. Yeah, it, it did vary. Like I said, when I the first 10 years of this particular position, as you said in your intro, I was in other positions in other companies. But in this particular position, a day was everything and many hours too, because it was a lot to, to do, but included everything from meeting with donors, having staff meetings, responding to emails, planning for the next production or the next year even, and then maybe doing auditions that would, that would come up at different times of the year, doing in rehearsals. If we're in performance, I would be at all the shows to introduce shows and to meet and greet with audience and to ensure that donor relations and patron relations was, and a lot of troubleshooting and problem solving along the way. Uh, initially, it was a lot of putting together the creative teams and the administrative teams and the staffing and all that kind of stuff. And as time had gone by and the staff got more robust, then ensuring that each of the staff leaders and department heads knew what their tasks were and then meeting with them regularly, you know, once a week with every department head, of course, and then all the follow-ups that go along with things that, that pop up along the way. There's two big aspects of it. One was administration, just making sure the business was running smoothly and meeting with people along the way and raising money and making sure bills were getting paid and all that kind of stuff. And just kind of not necessarily having to do it myself, but making sure that who, the people that were doing it had the questions answered that they needed and had the resources and support they needed to do their job. And then from the artistic end of things, that's sort of never ending because <laughs> every time you have 
one show up, you're preparing for the next one. And even in the in October, you're preparing for the following season. So you're usually trying to work a year or two ahead programmatically. And then you're in the midst of the everyday, which is rehearsals and casting and running shows and all of that. So my job was pretty much to direct a lot of productions. And that meant being in rehearsal in the evenings and on the weekends, because we have We cast both young people and adults in our show. So with any young person in a show, you have to work after school hours. And so there's those rehearsals and then getting ready to open the show and then running the show and then getting into the next show and all that. So as time went by, I directed a little bit less. We, We moved from doing two productions a year to doing five productions a year, and I would continue to direct two or three of those as we went forward. And then in the last few years, I've directed one or two just because of just trying to get more voices, more artists, Mm -hmm. and more perspectives involved with what kind of stories we tell and how we tell them on stage. That's really interesting. And I'm just curious if we like look at your broader career, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you came through the theater world and not the business world. And so I'm just wondering over the years, like how did you build your business sense? Because until the roles were split, I mean, that's a massive undertaking. You and I, I don't know if you know, have some similar work. I'm the co-director of a creative arts program and a summer camp and after school. And so really it's just, I'm hearing a lot of echoes about what goes into my role. And I am more of a serial entrepreneur. And so I kind of had to carry over from one program to another, the business end, but I'm just so fascinated. You know, you came through the theater world and I do find that it's really an interesting part of nonprofit work that a lot of times people are involved in the programming and then they move up into the business administration aspect of that. And so how did you gain those strategies? Was it like trial by fire or did you pursue training or how did you get to be so masterful at all of that? That's a great question. And it's something that as an industry, we've noticed a lot is that people get advanced and then put into these kinds of roles without really any training. So I personally didn't have my, my undergraduate and my graduate work was in theater and directing and in production. But I started my first professional work was really in stage management, which is a lot of project management work. And that was, while there wasn't the financial end of things, there was certainly the logistical coordination and management. And that was tremendous, right? Because you have to track the progress of everybody and everything that's getting done in connection to the production. And then I moved into, from stage management, there was kind of a natural transition into production management. Production management is really overseeing all the technical ends of the production. So hiring electricians and hiring costumers and hiring staff and hire and putting together how many, how much it's going to cost to do a show and the budgets for shows. So I think luckily I had sort of a financial acumen to naturally to begin with. I have a unique combination of being able to be right brain and left brain oriented. And, you know, not everybody's got that. Some people are very, very heavy in one or the other, and it's really hard to blend, to add in the other. Some of the people like, I don't know, I'm just a numbers person, or I don't know, I'm just an ideas person. And I had a natural, you know, 
even when I was a child, one of the first things I did as a kid, I can remember is I used to run these backyard carnivals okay. where I would raise money for muscular dystrophy at the time. It was like a Ronald McDonald type thing. And I'd put posters up on the telephone poles and I'd organize what games are going to be played and I'd, I'd charge admission and you know all this kind of stuff. And so I always had a little sense of that. But then as a professional, it came really much bigger, much more complicated. So my production management work necessarily involved budgeting, tracking, Mm -hmm. estimating, strategizing, being able to look back and say, okay, what did we do on that production or that show? And how is that going to influence what we do in the next one? So that was really the groundwork for it. And I did that for quite a few years, about 14 years at American Players Theater. But my first love was always directing. That was what I got my master's in. That's what I love to do. I love to be in the rehearsal room and creating the show and seeing it come to life and working with the actors and the designers and all that. So that was really where I decided after all the years of being production management and then also being an associate artistic director that I would really like to have more opportunities to direct and maybe even form the vision for a company of my own. And Mm -hmm. so that led me into applying for and getting the position at the Children's Theater of Madison. But your question is very apt. Now there are more programs that are trying to train artists how to think about Mm. the business end of things. Because even actors, especially actors, have to think of themselves as entrepreneurs. Most of them don't have agents. And even when they do, the agents aren't just working for one actor at a time, unless you get to be, you know, Tom Hanks or, you know, somebody really big. But most of the time they're managing other people. And so most actors in the majority of their career have to be their own promoter. They have to be their own business manager. They have to put themselves in the driver's seat of trying to figure out what they need to do to market themselves. And they have to think about how much they get paid and how Mm -hmm. they're going to handle their money. But we don't train artists to be business people. We train them to express their talents and to pursue their talents. But now there are more programs. The UW-Madison has a master's program in arts and business leadership. Oh, cool. And that's really important. They take people that have been very interested in the arts or maybe artists themselves and start giving them real opportunities to learn about fundraising, to learn about business plans, to learn about budgeting, to learn about supervision and personnel management. That's, That's a lot. And so many times in our field people are thrown into positions of leadership without that kind of Mm -hmm. training or experience. And it's really can be really challenging. So if you've got the right kind of sensibility to start with a little bit of that right brain, left brain, it's a little easier, but we love to have dynamic leaders and dynamic leaders are amazing because they're so ideological. So how do we help those ideological people and visionaries to marry that with some pragmatism and some understanding, at least, of what it takes to make something happen. And that most people learn that on the job. It's interesting, as you were describing artists needing to represent themselves from a business standpoint, I was thinking like performers are the original social media influencers, you know, that it's really the same type of 
thing. And even with this podcasting, it's one thing for us to have this really beautiful conversation and for it to be produced exactly as we want it to be and put out there. But unless we are actively promoting it and sourcing it and connecting and looking at it like a business, it doesn't go anywhere. And so it's really interesting. I don't have a background in anything theater. Actually, that's not true. When I was in middle school, I was in some plays, (laughs) musicals, Oklahoma. (laughs) Yeah, but not really. I I don't have actual experience in professional anything related to theater. And so it's really interesting and makes total sense. And like you said, a lot of people do get promoted without the business training and background. And I'm so glad to hear that there are programs that are training artists and performers And then, of course, the directors and everybody in there to look at it like a business because money makes the world go round and you have to make sure that it lines up and that you're paying the bills and that and then in turn that the company, I would imagine, then can better support the artists. If it's a thriving nonprofit, then they can pay the actors appropriately or the directors or the artistic directors and the costumes. It's to serve the purpose, but it is sort of a necessary component of it. Absolutely. That's. Yeah, they they call it show business for a reason, right? Ah, yes, <laughs> light bulb moment, <laughs> totally. So one topic that is right on theme here that I thought would be juicy for us to dig into a little bit is delegation. I have to imagine that being the leader in the theater world is quite the exercise in balancing enlisting enthusiastic and dedicated team members like you were just talking about, building up all of the different team components with keeping your own hand really closely on the dial so that the final production turns out just right on show day. So I'm curious what strategies you have relied on over the years to strike the right balance for that. And then on a practical level, what this looks like in implementation. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's so great about the theater making art is that it is essentially and necessarily collaborative. I think that what makes someone a good director and I think a good leader is assembling the people around them that bring in all kinds of perspectives and skills and talents and then recognizing that you're always better. It's cliche, but you're better together than apart. And the whole is great. It's truly greater than the sum of its parts. So for me as a director, I just know that I want and need the support and the ideas of those specialists. Lighting, I know things about lighting. So if something happened along the way, I could maybe ask questions in a language that would be useful for a lighting designer. I know something about scenic design and costumes and things like that, but I am not an expert. So bringing in those experts and those designers together, I really like it because it takes the pressure off of having to know everything. And I think that directors or leaders who are more in terms of do this, do that, don't empower their people. And in turn, the people don't feel like they have agency or opportunity to really shine or to present an idea that might be different. I just sort of analogize with directing a show with leading a company. Because in directing a show, you have a vision as to what's important about the story. What's the core idea of that story? Where where are some moments that you really can see in your brain or hear in your ears? That's the right thing to help tell that story and to play that scene. But at the same time, the people around you are not puppets. You know, if you want to get the actors to 
come up with the ideas on their own. And many times they're way better than anything I could have thought of. And likewise with the designers. But I still know the direction I want to go. I still have an idea of the tone and really the story that I want to tell. And every story can be told in many, many different ways. So likewise, with being a leader of a company, it's like I still have a core values for that company, a vision for where that company wants to get to in three or five years, the kinds of people and the kinds of energy and the kinds of talents I want to surround myself with, and that I think will serve the mission and the purpose of the company the best. And then it's not easy, and especially it's not easy when you hit bumps in the road and something you're struggling financially or your things aren't coming together quite as right. And that one you tend to want to, as a leader, I tend to want to grab on tighter and okay, I got to fix this. But sometimes it's like, okay, let's talk about where we're going to go. Attention fellow small business owners. Have you thought about how nice it would be to hire employees or contractors, but aren't sure how to onboard and pay them? Or have you been paying staff but aren't sure if you're doing it correctly? Managing payroll can feel stressful, but it doesn't have to. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto is a software that makes payroll and HR easy for small businesses. I started using Gusto for my employees as my company has grown, and it is really easy to use. Payroll takes me just a few minutes to process, and I feel so good knowing that all my I's are dotted and T's are crossed. Right now, Gusto has an exciting offer for our listeners. Sign up for Gusto using the special link in our show notes, and you'll receive a $100 Visa gift card. Streamline your business operations with Gusto and get the support you need to grow your business too. Click the link in our show notes to get started and claim your $100 Visa gift card. Gusto makes the business of business easier for you. So the delegation, I think, is is really about recognizing how to project manage, for one thing, who can do what well, and giving people the room to do their job, and then finding systems that work as everybody has different ways of getting feedback. Everybody responds differently to different kinds of communication. So that personnel management part of it is really big. And I would say it probably took, it's, it took me my entire career really to figure out where some of those lines were. And I still had room to grow. The pandemic Mm -hmm. brought up all kinds of stuff around how we communicate with each other, who has the lead, who has Mm -hmm. voice, And it really shook everything up in terms of how we lead and how we structure our feedback loops and our supervisory style and how we give people agency, knowing that we're still held responsible for delivering Mm -hmm. on whatever it is that we have to deliver on, whether it's financial Mm -hmm. or artistic or otherwise. You use the phrase feedback loop, and I feel like that's such an important part. That's the part that I just personally need to continue to build on. It's like, yes, I can bring people onto the team that I either know are going to need more direction or I can trust to use their skills to do it. But then, yeah, bumps get hit. Things come either are unexpected or people's lives change or they end up not, you know, their desire to execute a vision is there, but maybe it doesn't happen. And so, yeah, creating that loop is is a big piece of it. And so I completely identify with what you were talking about, but it is tricky. It's really tricky. It's a, it's a challenging part. 
It's it because it's so much about, it's all about people, right? It's all about mm-hmm. like one person wants to be given the goal and let me figure out how to get there. Somebody else wants to yeah. be given milestones along the way and they want to check mm-hmm. in along the way and say, I've hit this one. Now I'm going to move to that one. And others are more inclined to start out with what do you want? When do you want it by? How do you want me to do it? And so navigating that, because both ends of the extreme are not really great to say, here it is, go and do with it what you will and see at the finish line versus let's discuss what the goal is and how you're going to get there and know that let's have some check-ins along the way versus others that are just like really much more comfortable. I just want to do it right. And that plays out in the artistic process too, with everybody that's involved. You know, some people are like, I just want to come up with my own idea for what the set is going to look like. And then I want you to respond to it later. And then we can make some changes. And other people are like, give me more information about what you want. And then I'll start working on it. Actors, they're like, some of them, especially young actors are looking for permission all the time. How do you want me to do this? Do you want me to walk over there? Do you want me to sit down here? Do you want me to say it more with more anger? Do you want me to say it louder? And all that stuff is not giving them the opportunity to find their mm-hmm. own way. Yet, in some cases, I have to say, yeah, no, that's great. Let's let's try that idea, you know. Or, yeah. well, let's. How about if you do it this way to start with, and we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. So. You know, working with young people, I find releasing them of the need to have permission before trying and then working with professional adults, finding out what their preferred way is or what's the most effective way to work with them. And that's some sometimes a little harder because the longer people have been in situations are supervised by certain types of people or certain styles, Mm -hmm. then it's harder to, you know, Mm -hmm. find it takes time. I mean, yeah, it takes time. One idea that I've been seeing out in the ether more lately is the difference between hiring somebody that's an implementer and hiring someone that's a decider. And I really like that framework. And it really makes me think my team from my company itself is is growing in addition to the teams from my different programs. And so it has really been on my mind. Like I, that is something I probably need to really think about before, because it has to be what am I really looking for in this? Am I really looking for an implementer who's going to take the ideas that are already established or the plan that was created by myself or a different team member and go and execute it? Or am I really looking for someone to be a decider? And I think that communicating that on the front end is is maybe something that's overlooked is that we kind of assume that people know whether we want them to just implement or when to implement and when to decide, but that really as the leader, we probably need to be more explicit than we even think about what our expectation is for that because they might be in a role where they don't want to be a decider. You know, we see them as having so much potential for ideas and we want them to utilize their experience, but some people don't want to do that or not in that role, not in this situation, not in this phase of their life. And on the flip side, some people have all these ideas, but we really want them to go and implement a plan. So I don't know, just something about what you were sharing about it really it's brought that back into mind for me because 
I'm, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about that right now. So yeah, I, I hadn't thought about it even down to the performance itself, but that makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. I love that distinction that you just brought up between implementer and decider. And I can see how that can play out. And there are people I know that have been in assistant or associate roles, you know, especially assistant roles long-term and they like that. They don't want mm-hmm. the pressure of being held accountable for the bottom line or where the buck stops. They'd like to keep mm-hmm. supporting and jumping on board and helping to keep that end of the operation going smoothly, get a lot of satisfaction out of that. Not everybody mm-hmm. is cut out to supervise other people. It's hard. It is. People are people and they have all kinds of stuff going on. And when they are able to thrive by doing what they like doing and able to find even because nobody's going to do everything they like to do in any job. Not every actor is going to enjoy doing every part of their role in every part of the rehearsal process. Some of them would rather just come in and learn their lines and get into repetition right away. Others like to just take a lot of time, Mm -hmm. keep exploring, 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 and then (laughs) then finally start to set things. And so everybody's different, you know, and I love that distinction between implementers and deciders. You can have ideas in both of those ends of things, but some jobs are definitely more oriented towards one than the other. And I think as we respect, when you were saying people are people, I've been thinking a lot about phases of life too. I have teenage kids now and I look back at when I started my company and I was in a really different situation then, or if I even rewind before that, there were different times of life, different phases, different experiences where I was able to invest more energy into being a decider, even within my own company and an implementer. I think people go through phases personally And so just because someone has the capacity to be a great decider, they might be in a phase of life where they are going to put their emotional energy and physical energy into other things. And so being a really excellent implementer, it will be really fulfilling. And I think that is super valuable as well. So yeah, that's been on my mind a lot lately. So thanks for going down that rabbit hole with me a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I totally relate to that about phase of life. I'm end career, Mm. right? I've been in the business for over 30 years. And definitely things were different in the last five, seven years than they were in the first five or seven years. Way different. What we talked about initially, that need to control and that need to feel like I was responsible for everything. And therefore I had to have a higher grip on everything, you know, really changed and evolved. And I think by the end, I just felt a lot more okay, we'll figure this out. It also helped that my company that I was working for went from, you know, hair on fire to like, we're good. We're stable. I know where we're going. You know, I mean, the first couple of years was just like, ah, got to get it together, put it up and get some money, you know? And then it was started to financial stability really helps leaders let go a little bit more. (laughs) It's almost like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs even has like a business context. So I, it does totally. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It does. Absolutely. 
So between the dynamic staff roster that you probably had on an ongoing basis and the many, many children you have worked with and then their parents, which is its own whole thing, roles like the ones you have had really involve so many decisions on just a constant basis, I'm sure. So how did you over the years and do you balance being just a person like we were talking about that is figuring it out as you go with the responsibility of leading the group and being seen with the one with the final answer at the end of the day. Yeah. I always feel like there were, when there were questions involved, if there wasn't a really hundred percent, like absolutely, which most things were not, or an absolutely not, which most things were not. It was almost always a yes, if, or a no, but. Mm -hmm. And so I think that knowing that, the decisions are weighed against what the risks are, getting input from various people, you know, and talking about that idea. Let's see if that can fly. I'm making it sound like every question that comes up gets a whole <laughs> therapy session around <laughs> right. it. It doesn't happen like that. It's like right. things have to happen yeah. like lickety split. But I think intuitively start to really know more about the brain fires a little quicker on all the ramifications. I think also keeping open about just because we have never done it like that before doesn't mean we shouldn't try or we've always done it this way. Why would we change it? Mm -hmm. So trying to keep an open mind, but respecting the fact that maybe there's a reason why we've always done that. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times when somebody new would come in and they go, oh, I think you should, I think you should, I think you should or somebody from the outside can see that you think, well, there's a, there's probably a reason why we've been doing it this way. Does Mm -hmm. it mean that we can't reevaluate and make some different choices? Of course we can, but first Mm -hmm. let's look at why are we doing it this way to begin with and what's working, what's not working. But yes, decisions are not, have not historically been my strong suit in terms of quick decisions. Cause I always can see yeah. being a pragmatic person, a Virgo and on the yes. Libra end of things, you know, it's like, well, yes, if, well, no, but, or this one would be good that way, that way. So I've had to, to learn how to communicate less ambiguity, but also communicate a sense of like, be, be okay with saying, ah. I don't know, but let me think about it. I love or that. Or also not being always viewed as, I'll make up my mind and let you know what I decide. To try to find a way that there's inclusion in the decision-making process. And then, like you said, people don't always want the responsibility. They, they do want a leader that's going to be willing to say, I'm not going to do that. We're not going to do that. And I try not to use as much I language, Mm -hmm. but like, we're not going to do that. Or I think for the company, it would be better if we blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Let's try this instead. But making sure people know that if it's a hard choice, and I have been unpopular, Mm -hmm. many choices have been unpopular. I mean, the COVID pandemic made it have to make some really hard decisions Mm -hmm. and choices. We're going to come back. We're not going to come back. Mm -hmm. We're going to wear masks. We're not going to wear masks. We're going to do programs with kids inside, we're going to wait. You know, we've had the advantage of being able to follow some of the CDC guidelines. But even Mm -hmm. after that, when it was like, some people were back, some people weren't, there were a lot of things to consider. And you make the best decision you can and hope that you communicate it in a respectful and empowering and uh, positive way. 
one of the things that you said was like a clarity moment for me and I love it. And I'm going to really hold it close as you said that you want to not be ambiguous. You want to not show ambiguity, but you want to show openness. And that really, really hits it on the head. I think it's that especially with organizations that are growing or have grown more, you know, when they're smaller, it is easier to be more outwardly mm-hmm unsure or yeah show a little bit more of that ambiguity because people can tolerate more of the waiting of the in-between but as programs grow yeah it is so important to show openness and not be harsh but also not show ambiguity like come out with a clear decision a clear process a clear message so I'm gonna really hold that close because that is so incredibly true. Yeah. There's also that way that can say, this is what we're going to do and we're going to do it for now, or we're going to do it for the next three years, or we're going to do it for the foreseeable future. Until we decide otherwise, we're going to do this. Just keep saying, let's try this. Let's do this and see how it goes. And we can reevaluate later, right. but we first have to try it before right. we know Making decisions is definitely more complex right now, I think understandably, and also probably will be for the better ultimately. And it's good because we maybe didn't consider a lot of things in the past, and now we need to consider them. Yeah. And especially as white leaders, I have some privileges that I grew up with and that I'm aware of and that I wasn't aware of and now I'm more aware of and, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that that just kind of are all part of the equation now in a good way. Our eyes have definitely opened in new ways over the past few years and on all of these fronts, for sure. So you just maybe touched on this, but there's the phrase, if I only knew then what I know now. Hmm. And I'm wondering if you could give yourself a message for your first day in these leadership roles with the wisdom and the experience that you have now what would that message look like? It would be a, a compound sentence. Would be <laughs> <laughs> um, trust yourself, trust your instincts. Your instincts are good, and um, keep keep on track with the the steps that you can take. Do what you can do now. The rest will follow. So I guess it's simply like, don't, that. don't worry so much, you know, and the worrying because the worrying turns into grasping and it's mm-hmm. tough. It's really hard. I mean, you know, my younger self wanted to achieve and wanted to succeed and hadn't had as much life experience. And so there was a lot of real natural stuff in there of, of trying to find my way, but I think all along it's like you you are enough and you have enough to offer. So keep on going. I love it. I love it. That is really fantastic. So I have a few last questions, a little more rapid fire questions for you to wrap up. Does anyone come to mind that you could shout out who believed in your leadership skills maybe even before you did? Yes, I would say that there was a an actor whose name is Robert Spencer, a champion for me all along. And and he had acted and he directed and he led companies and all that kind of stuff. And there was a board member 
his name was Terry Haller, and he he stood behind me from day one. That's really cool. Well, I have to imagine that, especially now that I've heard your compassionate leadership perspectives, that there are many people out there that would answer that question with you as the person who believed in them. That would be an honor. That would be a gift. And I never went into this seeking fame or fortune. I really went into this to try to do really good work and to make a difference. And so now at the end of my career to be getting so many letters and acknowledgments and you made a difference in my life kind of thing is so incredibly powerful because I didn't set out to do that, Mm. but it makes all the difference in the world to know that that's what happened because I'm so glad to hear that that's coming back to you. I know. I think about if I wish everyone who works so hard and devotes so much of themselves to their work, to their company, to their occupation would get that kind of recognition and acknowledgement. It, it wasn't expected. It wasn't sought, but at the end it is what made all of the blood, sweat and tears worth it. That is so cool. That is really, really cool. So throughout your years of all of this detailed project management, whether it was the stage management or the business management, are there any tools or strategies that you use to stay organized and effective, whether that's like a tech thing or paper or your decision rubrics? Like how did you stay organized with all of these? (laughs) Well, I keep a lot of windows open on my computer. (laughs) I also, I, I don't know if organization has been the best the most strongest suit, but I do keep some to-do lists. You know, I'm a lister and that kind of uh-huh. thing. Okay. Um, I didn't ever really make the transition into digital organization, but calendars, the digital calendar, I did make that transition. That has been a big help because project management has some so many deliverables for me in this kind of work. So whether it's an, a fundraising letter that has to go out or a rehearsal schedule that has to get done or a staff agenda that has to be put together, most of those have some flow to it. But yeah, I think there's a lot more tools out there now. A lot of people are like using things like Asana and other kinds of digital platforms. I never really moved into those quite as as much. I'm a very visual person, so I like to see things in front of me. So I leave a lot of things out on my desk so I can (laughs) see them. I leave a lot of windows open. So I know I got to get back to that one. I got to get back to that one. And that, that would drive other people crazy. They'll be like, it's so much stuff right in front of me all the time. You know, I have 15 calendars open at once on a kind of, on my thing, but it gives me a, I can take that kind of visual stimulation in and retain what's what's calling for me to get done next so well hey it has worked so (laughs) that that is great and I have good people I have good people that remind me of things I relied on that a lot (laughs) somebody that would say don't forget this is due next week thank you Uh, that's great that's great all right. My last question for you is if you had a day where you could accomplish nothing, no tasks at work, at home, nothing, a com- day completely quote off, what is one activity that you would do and one place you'd go to get something to eat? 
Oh, does it have to be in my home? Like it's not like Mexico or something? You can go. Well, it's only one day. Oh, it's only one day. Okay. (laughs) I can't get there and back in the same day. Okay. Okay. One day at my, that I could do, where would I get something to eat? Well, if it's nice weather, I would definitely be outside either playing pickleball or tennis or going for a hike and without any time pressure, play as long as I want, hike as far as I want or short as I want, whatever. And then I would probably go to, hmm, where would I go get something to eat? Gosh, there's so many choices. There's a a really sweet, fun distillery pub type place that's on the river and has really good food and really good atmosphere. And I would go there. Awesome. Well, that that sounds like a very lovely day. Well, Roseanne, thank you so much for joining me. Is there anything that you have coming up that you want listeners to know about or any last messages that you want to leave the listeners with? Yeah. Well, I will always be a champion of the theater company that I have helped to build and have been just starting to retire from. And that is the Children's Theater of Madison. And the next production is A Christmas Carol. And that is in December, and it's going to be fantastic. It is an annual experience. And then in the spring, I'm directing The Diary of Anne Frank, and I'm really looking forward to that. And in between, there's there's other shows at ctmtheater.org. You can go see if you're in the Madison area or in the Midwest. It's an incredible company doing great work. And so, yeah, I would I would I would ping those. All right. We will take the website and the show notes so anybody can go and check out the show times and read more about it. Thank you so much for talking with me. I really am grateful that you shared your perspectives with me and I really enjoyed our conversation. And to the listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode and we'll be back next time with another inspiring interview. Thank you. Follow the Leaders is produced by Lit Path Studios and music is by Shane Ivers. You can hear more about this show and all the other podcasts at Lit Path Studios by going to www.litpathstudios.com.